This is Your Brain on Risk. This is Mind Over Money, the podcast where Kevin Cook exposes the psychology of investing. Welcome back to Mind Over Money. I'm Kevin Cook, your field guide and storyteller for the fascinating arena of behavioral economics. Imagine setting a goal to become one of the most read authors on Medium.com and actually achieving it in only one year. That's what graduate student Benjamin Hardy did in 2015 as he worked on his PhD in organizational psychology at Clemson University. And as a student of human motivation and productivity, Hardy gained extra levels of both as fuel for his big goal to become a world-class writer from his three new foster kids that he and his wife decided to rescue from drug-addicted parents. Those kids are some motivation. Benjamin became the number one writer on Medium in 2016 and duplicated the effort in 2017, where his 200-plus articles accumulated their first 50 million combined page views sometime in 2018. This prolific productivity is how I first noticed Benjamin Hardy's writing, as my medium reading history in psychology topics must have recommended various articles in his new flood. But what really caught my attention about his articles were the mind-catching titles and success-oriented advice embedded in them. As he told John Lee Dumas, host of the Entrepreneurs on Fire podcast in a May 2017 interview, his first real traction came with a June 2015 article, Eight Things Every Person Should Do Before 8 a.m. Going somewhat viral stoked his belief that he was doing, that what he was doing in giving people solid, actionable advice for achieving their goals was really working. In September of 2018, Sarah Sai, writing for writingcooperative.com, did an analysis of Hardy's rapid success. In her article, 10 Clever Ways to Write Like a Medium Rockstar, Lessons Learned from an In-Depth Analysis of a Top Medium Writer, Sai wrote, with over 200,000 followers on Medium alone, Benjamin Hardy has published 261 articles as of the publication of this article, and that was September 2018, averaging 19,000 claps per article. And she thanks Excel for the number crunching work there. The, the current article featured on Ben Hardy's Medium page is a September 2017 piece titled, This Moral Routine Will Save You 20 Plus Hours Per Week. It has 78,000 claps. From all this extreme productivity, writing an average of two plus articles per week about motivation and mindset principles, habits, and routines, you might guess that Ben Hardy has cultivated extreme willpower. It wouldn't be a stretch to assume that he turned his knowledge of the psychology of achievement into an iron will. But actually, all this writing and research helped him produce his first major book titled, and I kid you not, Willpower Doesn't Work. <clears throat> The subtitle is Discover the Hidden Keys to Success, and it's a treasure of insight about how to proactively shape our environment in order to craft new behaviors and evolve into the person we want to become. This is an exciting work published in March 2018 by Hachette Book Group, and with a little encouragement from his friend Ryan Holiday, who is quoted on the cover, change your environment, change your life. Ben Hardy's book is a prescription for excellence. Some nice words there from uh, Ryan Holiday, the author of uh, The Obstacle is the Way. There's even a plug on the book from Ariana Huffington, 
as Ben's first viral article got him a shot as a guest blogger on HuffPost. I really wish I had discovered Ben's book two years ago when I was learning to piece together better routines and knowing that it had something to do with setting up better surroundings, including what I would say, what I would call easier, not harder steps to your daily goals. But we did gain some great insight on this from Nir Ayel in my April interview with him about his new book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. So when I got a chance to interview Ben Hardy in May, I was all set for an hour-long conversation about willpower. Then I find out his next powerful book is on the way in June, Personality Isn't Permanent, Break Free from Self-Limiting Beliefs and Rewrite Your Story. Another mind-opening title with a powerful message, including Ben's philosophy on why those personality tests and boxes are not worth your time. We talked about both books and his growing family with twin baby girls added in 2018. He also shared some of his tough family life growing up and even his current relationships with those suffering from addiction. In discussing all things related to personality and performance, we got into some great discussions about the underlying identity aspects of individual psychology that create our self-image and perceived personality. The results of our personal narratives can either limit our efforts and success or free us to be and do more, especially when we understand the power we give to past experiences, memories, and traumas versus the vision we hold of creating our ideal self and future. Ben explains the powerful difference between these two ways of approaching your life and how to tip the scales in your favor for what you really want. He even gives an example of teaching children how to create their own powerful future visions. To learn more about Ben's new book, Personality Isn't Permanent, and all the bonuses you can pick up on the launch of the book this week, go to BenjaminHardy.com. That's H-A-R-D-Y, BenjaminHardy.com. He's got some great and short intro videos there that explain his practical approach to the psychology of motivation and achievement. You can also go to uh, a link to the publisher, Penguin Random House. You'll find it in the, uh, the, the show notes for the podcast and in the article version on Zach's.com, uh, where they have a great audio excerpt from the book because uh, it's already on Audible if you're, uh, if you're not there already. So now, please join me in discovering the personality of Benjamin Hardy and what makes him so massively productive. I'll be back faster than you can spell self-limiting beliefs. And we're back with Dr. Benjamin Hardy. Ben, thanks for joining us today on Mind Over Money. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. And congratulations on the launch of your second book, which I'm sure will become a bestseller, uh, just like your first one, uh, Willpower Doesn't Work. The new book is Personality Isn't Permanent. And uh, looking at it, I, I noticed on your website that um, up until launch, you were you had some bonus offers if people picked up the book. Um, what, what would still be going on now? Same thing to some degree. Um, I'll obviously adjust it a little bit, but basically, I mean, there there will be a lot of freebies for people who buy the book pre Excellent. or post. So yeah, yeah, I love that. That's the that's the way to go. And um, I uh, before uh, we got together here, I had picked up one of your lesser known books. 
creating your ideal future, which was just packed full of ideas. I listened to it on audio and just uh, just a really you know powerful nugget of a book uh, packed with with tons of ideas. Um, and then I was really excited to look through Willpower Doesn't Work because you had published that in 2018, I believe. And um, I mean, I think it answers such a vital question. I know, I know there was, uh, I had, we spoke to Nir Eyal last week, um, or actually last month, about his book, uh, Indistractable. And he had gone over the controversial research about willpower, but you had also sort of, sort of done that a couple of years ago. What, what, led you, what made you discover that there was this big misconception with willpower several years ago? I mean, I got a PhD in psychology, so I mean, I've studied it for quite a while. The research is pretty, pretty huge. And so, I mean, I, I just felt like a different viewpoint was, was important. I mean, I, th I, I like Nier's work and I actually think that for sure my stuff on willpower doesn't work is very, there's a huge, you know, definite synergy with his work. Um, and I think he's done a brilliant job researching. The, the, the reason I wrote that book was that a few reasons. One was I, I have a, you know, I come from a rough background to many degrees, uh, a huge amount of addiction in my environment, you know, okay. and my father was a meth addict, drug addict when I was in my teenage years. My younger brother, I actually literally last week took him to a treatment facility. So like addiction is a huge thing. And Trying to overcome an addiction through willpower is a really bad idea. It doesn't really work. And there's a really good quote from Johan Hari where he says the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but it's connection. So obviously what you need is to actually get help. <laughs> you need to actually, and then obviously create an environment. But the other, so that was really important for me to understand. And just realizing that my brother is going to be stuck and as long as he stays around the negative influences around him. But on a, on a, on a different scale, when my wife and I became foster parents of three kids, those kids came from such a limiting environment where like they had zero, like your, your choices and your options are based on your context on, on like what's around you, your environment. And so like our kids, they really didn't have a lot of option. Like their parents were on drugs. They were out in the middle of nowhere. They weren't being taken to school. They were in front of the TV all day. And so like in that situation, their, their choices are limited. And so like no amount of willpower could make that possible. I mean, even you and I on Skype having this call, if we lived 50 years ago or 100 years ago, like we wouldn't be able to have this call over the Internet because the Internet didn't exist. And so it's just an honest recognition that, you know, you can only do so much and it's based on context, not willpower. And, uh, you know, so the book really is about shaping context versus focusing so much on your individual self, which is kind of the popular way to do things today because we live in an individualistic culture. Yeah, one, one thing that you really made clear in Willpower Doesn't Work is you've got to design your environment to help you win. So that's, you keep using the word context. And yeah, environment, know, yeah. Yeah, and I know you use the word environment too. It's like, you know, build it so it can work for you and, and don't, don't think that you have to power through everything. Make things, you know, um, if you want to uh, write and read more, then clear your space and make your writing tools or what you want to read more accessible, more available, uh, so that you get that stuff done. Yeah, I mentioned life easier. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned your website. Uh, I want to mention it again because you know, right at the top where you've got the video about the the launch of the new book, uh, Personality Isn't Permanent. It's BenjaminHardy.com, and if you scroll down, if folks scroll down on the website, you get we get to meet your family. Um, and great snapshot I'm looking at right now. 
of your three adopted kids and uh, how quickly your family exploded in a matter of months because you and your wife are holding uh, your twin babies. So, uh, you know, so somebody, you basically, you and your wife went from, you know, zero kids to five kids in just a matter of months, right? Essentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we actually had the older ones as foster kids with no no knowledge if we were going to adopt them. And then when the adoption occurred, a month later, my wife became pregnant with twins. Oh, and I yeah, see, so yes. You mentioned official, there was official. a long court battle to, yeah. to get the kids. I forgot about that part. Yeah, but it was official. I mean, it, we, we, we didn't know we were going to adopt. And actually, there's different stages. It's like when you get married to someone, the relationship kind of changes. Um, like when we adopted the kids, there was a transition period because for a long period of time, we would take them to like the Department of Social Services. They'd meet with their parents every two weeks and it would like create all sorts of identity confusion for them. You know, and like they were uh, never really sure what would they were never sure what would happen because I mean, they could see that their parents were on drugs. But yeah, once we adopted them, there was a transition like emotionally for all of us because we didn't know it was going to happen. And it happened suddenly. And then, yeah, a month later, my wife got pregnant with twins and not, we had, you know, we had tried to get pregnant for years. And so it's it was interesting. It was a it was a crazy year. But actually, that was that side of the equation influenced willpower doesn't work as well. Like, obviously, in changing our kids environment, it changed them. But in going from zero to three, three kids without like, you know, immediately that changed us. Like and there's the quote from William Durant the famous historian where he said the ability of the average person could be doubled if the situation demanded it. And so like, that's a big aspect of willpower doesn't work as well. And also environment design is creating environments that kind of force you to go where you want to go anyways. You know, they force out, you know, that they force the desired change. And, and that, that's what I saw in myself was going from zero to three kids. I was required by, by virtue of my situation to make huge adjustments in myself that wouldn't have been required if I wasn't in that situation. Very good story. Yeah. Um, I just have to share. I never thought I'd be sharing this on my podcast, but I was a foster kid. So I went through a similar thing. My you know, taken away from my mother uh, at a young age, but I was extremely lucky because the family that ended up taking me and my little sister in was they were already our babysitters. Oh, so, wow. So when the court said, you know, when we had gone back and forth and, and when the court finally made a decision when I was five years old, and my sister was two and a half, that these kids, we've taken them away from their mother before, but this is the last time. It was like three strikes you're out. Um, my my our family, who was our babysitters, were like open arms. We want these kids. Bring them. And so we were pretty lucky to, to go into a family that already knew us and loved us. And so we didn't have the tough transition. Um that your kids had. Uh, but, but we also, you know, dealt with the later on, we're visiting mom when we're 10 years old and there's all these mixed messages and confusion. Um, so I know what a, you know, challenging time that can be. And, and you guys, uh, boy, yeah, uh, just like the Will Durant quote, quote, you guys really gave yourselves a big challenge. Yeah. Um, I was also, uh, then I also became a, a stepdad when I was older, cause to me, it was a no brainer. Like to me, Mixed families were <laughs> were just how you do things. And then we just adopted a, a child um, about nine years ago. So it's uh, so I have tons of respect uh, for your immense journey. And well, uh, right back, right back at you, man. It's, yeah. it's a good it's a good journey, isn't it? I mean, it, it really allows you to grow as a person and 
see what matters. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially when all these new surprises come at you and you're like, whoa, now I got to deal with this. Okay. <laughs> so I want to talk more about the new book. Um, so obviously you were working on a thesis and I mean, the title, you know, jumps out at you. Personality isn't permanent. And yet it seems like so much of our daily lives is that we, we are sort of the same person we were five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and everybody else around us, you know, like, uh, yeah, we can learn new things, but it seems our, our mental reactions, our emotional reactions are so set. So what was your research and your, and your goal with this new book? In some ways to understand why that is what you're describing, <laughs> uh, and, and to kind of figure out, is it actually true? I actually didn't believe it was true from the beginning because I've gone through a lot of change in myself. And my guess is, is that you actually probably have as well. But yeah, I just wanted to, under first off, there's so many different theories of personality and what it actually is. And obviously everyone has their own idea, but I just wanted to understand why people become so predictable. And I definitely didn't believe it was some innate thing that you just, you are the way you are, but I just wanted to break down what are the reasons people get so repetitive and why they get stuck and how can you make those changes if you want to? And so, yeah, I mean, that's part of why I wrote the book. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's so much there, especially when we, when, when there are all of these um, multiple theories about personality, and yet they, um, I suppose they could sort of make people stop in their tracks. Well, for instance, um, uh, you know, you want to point out to us right away that something like Myers-Briggs, you know, is it, it might provide you some insights, but ultimately it can be pretty limiting, right? I think so. Yeah, I, I well, as a psychologist, I would very, very much recommend you don't take that test seriously. It's not a very scientific test. Um, yeah, personality is not something, as, personality is not something you should throw into categories. That's not really an accurate way of looking at people. Um, people are a lot more, you know, as, as I would say before, like contextual, like you're not always one way. Like, so like, you know, if you get a score, let's just say on that test, you're like a INTJ, IN, whatever, whatever they are, mm -hmm. you're not always going to ref reflect that profile. Um, you're, you know, in some situations, just like you're not always going to be an introvert or an extrovert, like in some situations and in some roles, you're going to be different. Like your role as a parent, and as a husband, it's going to be different than you as a podcaster. The role, in many ways, predicts who you are and how you show up. Um, but that's that's not what these tests tell you. These tests give you one single score, and you then think that it's who you always are, when that's just not accurate. Actually, Ellen Langer at Harvard, who has studied mindfulness for several decades, one of the things that she finds that leads people to being mindless, mindlessness means that you're not aware of context, you're not aware of your own self or your behavior, you know, you want to be mindful for sure. <laughs> um, one of the things that leads people to being mindless is overly assuming a label about themselves. So like if someone believes they're depressed, they'll think they're always depressed. They won't notice or be mindful of the times when actually they're feeling really good um, because labels can create tunnel vision. In psychology, we call it selective attention. So okay. essentially, yeah. So if, if you buy a car, as an example, you'll start to see that car everywhere. And have you had that experience? Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, so if you buy a car, you see that car everywhere. You, what you don't notice is all of the other cars <laughs> because your brain can't, you know, there would be no reason for you to focus on those. And so with labels, you know, when you take these tests seriously, you, you assume it as an aspect of your identity. And so then you start to think you see it everywhere, which is not true. But also then when you have a sense of a label or an identity, 
you seek to defend it because it's a part of you and you seek to confirm it. And so these tests lead to confirmation bias, but they also lead you to not seeking change, but to confirm your and defend your current identity, which ultimately leads you to having a fixed mindset and being non-flexible to change, which really shatters your imagination and confidence as a person. Okay, so um, you described a lot of our conscious attempts to reinforce this, this identity. So for instance, and I can see how damaging that would be with, with depression, if somebody's depressed and then they keep reinforcing it with, you know, everything that goes along with identifying themselves as a depressed person, um, yeah, are there are there subconscious ways that we we reinforce some an identity like that that could be pretty destructive? Yeah, I mean, your subconscious is driven by emotion, and so you know, going back to Nier's work, like every time you pick up your phone and you start looking at it, just as an example without thinking about it, that's your unconscious behavior. That's an unconscious behavior. Looking, and then you're doing it because emotionally you've gotten accustomed to feeling those emotions. And so, yeah, unconscious is a huge aspect of personality. A lot of the things we do are unconscious <laughs> and, and they're emotionally driven. And so the goal is obviously to make conscious decisions, to do the things that you actually want to do versus just doing the things that you've been kind of, I would say, semi-addicted to doing. Yeah, um, a few weeks ago, I also I had uh, an addiction psychiatrist on named uh, uh, Judd Brewer. Don't know if you know Judd, but uh, he talked about anxiety as being one of these things that people end up identifying with and reinforcing. You know, I've I seen have, that a lot. I've had I have anxiety. I have high anxiety. My anxiety this. My anxiety that. So how have you seen it? I hear I hear people talk about that all the time. I was actually on a podcast this morning with someone who was talking so much about their anxiety. One thing that's important about all of this is that there's a difference between identity and personality. What you're describing is someone's identity. I'm, you know, they're defining themselves. Mm -hmm. I have anxiety. I am an introvert. I'm not good at math. All of those things are identity statements. But identity drives personality because your self-concept drives your behavior and over time your behavior shapes your personality. So personality is actually a byproduct. Um, identity is far more important and far more powerful and it's something to be very weary of. It's something to be very aware of. Um, and you know, so they call it narrative identity, which is basically how you define and describe yourself. And one of the reasons why these tests, you know, can be damaging is because you speak of your current self in such definitive terms. I am X. Um, and most people, you know, it sounded like in the intro, you don't necessarily believe this, but most people, if I were to ask them, are you the same person you were 10 years ago? Most people would actually say no. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And most, uh, most people don't think that they're the same person they were 10 years ago. And it's actually true that they're not. Um, and so like, and there's a lot of research on this, you know, Daniel Gilbert at Harvard has studied this for a long time. He's got a great Ted talk called the psychology of your future self six minutes long, a very worthwhile TED talk, and he's studied personality change over time. But most people, they don't think that they're the same person they're gonna be in the future, or sorry, they, they don't think they're the same person as they were in the past. But it's also very helpful for decision-making to recognize that you're not gonna be the same person in the future. Your future self is actually gonna be a different person than you. They would make different decisions than you're gonna to make today. They're gonna to feel differently about certain things than you feel right now. Um, they're gonna have different priorities and perspectives and goals. And so, 
because your future self is different and it's actually very healthy for decision making to view them as a different person and, and actually to make decisions based on your future self's preferences versus your current preferences. Because sometimes your current preferences aren't very helpful. <laughs> um, like I'll give an example, like after work a few weeks ago, my son Logan wanted to play with me and I was fried. He actually wanted to go swimming and I didn't want to do it. And so I was just like, you just swim and I'll watch you because I was tired. And then I thought to myself, how would my future self want to think about this or remember this? If I was watching this in the future, what would I want? You know, so you, you can actually use your future self as a good metric to make better decisions here now. And Hal Hirschfeld has studied that. The only reason I bring all of this up is that it's really healthy to actually keep your current identity loose. Like Paul Graham says, keep your identity small. But if, you, if you're overly emphasizing your current self, then that blocks you and stops you from being flexible to who you could be. Um, and so your current identity actually really doesn't matter that much. It, it only matters to the extent that you define the person you want to be and begin moving in that direction. So that sort of leads into another thing that you do with the book. And you actually talk about how past trauma can negatively shape personality and how people can reframe those traumas and, and in a sense, change their memories. And you, you meant you talked about identity narrative, like, so that's the story, right? So if you, if you have it, you had a trauma and it affected you and you have these deep seated memories and it becomes all part of your story. So how does somebody actually set about reframing and changing their memories? Yeah. Well, I guess I'll ask you, like, have you ever changed your mind about anything? Like, did you ever think that something was funny and now you don't? Or like, you know, something like that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, usually that's just a, one thing that's important. So there's a really good quote from Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey and other people have kind of said something similar. But basically the idea is, is that you don't see the world as it is. You see it as you are. So, I mean, that makes sense, right? You don't see the world as it is. But the same is actually true of your past. You don't see the past as it is. You see the past as you are. So it's very much just a perspective. And usually during traumatic, when you go through traumatic experiences, the reason they're such strong memories is because they were highly emotional. And obviously if it's trauma, it's a negative emotion. So in psychology, like emotions can be kind of viewed in, in you know, there's many ways to view emotions, but there's one framework where it's like you have an initial reaction and then there's the secondary emotions. So there's, you know, primary and then secondary. Your initial reaction is not really something to be judged. Like if someone cut, you might be freaked out. You know, if you're watching a scary movie, you might be scared or like, you know, if you're having a bad day, you might be just upset. How do you initially feel it is not as important as what you do next. And the next step is what you do on the second step, which is what we call emotional regulation, which is essentially deciding what what to do about it, deciding what the experience means, you know, and ultimately getting back on with your future. The problem with trauma is that you have a negative experience, a negative initial reaction, and then you don't necessarily regulate it. You actually just form what's called a cognitive commitment. You form a narrative based on the reaction. And so, you know, as one example, like there's a lot of research on math trauma, which I actually go through in the book, but it's the idea that someone had a negative experience with math. They were there. They could have been told they were not good at it. They could have had a, they could have failed a test. They could have had, you know, what any, any form of negative experience, but rather than getting help through it and moving on and continuing with the learning process, they formed a cognitive commitment or a narrative that they can't do math anymore. And a crucial aspect of trauma 
is that it freezes you so that you're defined by some you're you're defined by some past experience and it stop it stops you from having any hope or or imagination towards the future in that area it creates a fixed mindset so the person with math trauma it, they're not actually unable to learn math they've just formed a an identity that they can't do it therefore they're no longer flexible towards actually handling math and so they become rigid in their perspective and that's really what trauma does it stunts your growth and it stops you and it defines you in the past and it shatters hope hope and flexibility in the future and so your your comfort zone really shrinks all right great i'm glad that you uh you used the math example because obviously many people have much more severe traumas uh you know they were they were either abused or neglected as a child or something happened to them you know a crime was committed against them and you know or they or they have ptsd from uh yeah, <laughs> there's obviously more extreme experiences. Yeah, and, and so I don't have any of those extreme traumas, um, but I did have the math trauma, and, and it doesn't compare, but it helps me. It helps me see sort of the psychological mechanism that, um, and I actually overcame my math trauma because now I'm in the, the. I work in the financial world, um, but yeah, how I could have continued identifying with, I can't do that versus I completely flipped it around and said, wow, I'm really curious about this. Um, and I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that people with severe, uh, emotional or physical trauma can just easily flip it around. Uh, but I can see how they could remain stuck in, in their trauma in, in the past. So I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you detailed that for us. And I've, I look forward to diving into the book. I've just barely, you know, just got my hands on it here. And because uh, I was so busy finishing your, your other books, you know, I can't wait to see like the hands-on recommendations, the, the tools and techniques um, that, that you're trying to give people. In, uh, I, I forgot to, I wanted to mention in your, uh, in your prior book, uh, Willpower Doesn't Work, you've got a, first of all, there's this, it's this stunning cover because it just jumps out at you. Willpower doesn't work and doesn't is in gold letters. And right up above that, you've got um, kudos from Ryan Holiday, who wrote, uh, you know, The Obstacle is the Way, and Ariana Huffington. Um, how was, you know, one of your first books? Well, I, I kind of know how where I'm going with this is that you the, the way that I came across you was your incredible output of writing articles on medium like you must have set out a goal to just conquer medium and you were publishing something that seemed like every day um that you know had a you know a powerful headline and it, uh you were working on your phd in organizational psychology at the time and so you were just knee deep in the stuff um so how did you um how did you get to be so productive on medium what was the what was the the driving force there for you. I'm actually just starting again because it's, it's proving to be a useful platform again. But I'm very big on, you know, starting first with identity, your future self. Back in 2015, I was in the first year of my PhD program, and I really wanted to become a professional author. I wanted to be a traditionally published author, making at least six figures so that I could provide for my family. And, um, you know, I want the flexibility of schedule. And so, like, I think you have to really first start with who you want to be, and then you ultimately set goals to help you get there. And so it was around 2015. I started blogging in 2015 uh, on Medium and other places. But 
in order, before I even started writing, I actually came to a lot of conclusions about what I was going to do. Like, for example, I asked a lot of agents, other writers, how do you, how do you end up getting a book deal and how do you actually make money? You know? And so like I had to, I got a lot of, I, I actually ended up setting the goal that I wanted to get a six figure book deal with one of the big five. And like that goal is the thing that shaped my process. And actually there's a lot of research on the, like, I'm sure you've heard of the idea of 10,000 hour rule by, by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Yes, which, yeah, he picked that up from Anders Ericsson. Yeah, there you go, there you go. I'm glad you got the Anders Ericsson. Then I don't have to. Well, yeah, so the Anders Ericsson stuff's actually way more interesting because it's not actually a 10,000 hour rule. Like, people do stuff for 10,000 hours and don't get any better at it. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> what, you know, like, it's not about, you know, it, 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 there's that whole quote it's not 20 years' experience, it's one year repeated 20 times. Um, yeah. And so Anders Ericsson's research is really about deliberate practice, which is very different from doing something over and over. Like you can't actually engage in deliberate practice without a clear future self in mind. Um, deliberate practice is very intentional learning. And, and so for me, when I decided I wanted to jump into the blogging world, I, I was very clear on the goal, which was that I wanted to become a professional author. And, and, and I learned very quickly that in order to do that, I had to have at least a hundred thousand email subscribers. Like that was, you have, in order to have motivation, you have to have a clear goal and then you have to have the path to get to the goal. And so, you know, if you want to increase your motivation, you need to actually create that path. And so I had to ask a ton of questions to the right people, you know, the Jeff Goins of the world, the, uh, Seth Godin's, the Michael Hyatt, the, the um, Ryan holidays, like, et cetera. I asked them all these questions cause they were kind of clearly where I wanted to be. And that's where I set the goal. I needed to have 100,000 email subscribers so that then I can get my you know, six-figure book deal so I could be my future self. And so that was really the mindset I had starting into Medium. You know, the goal always has to shape the process. I think the problem with a lot of writers and a lot of creative people is they over-infatuate the process. They get really obsessed with the process, and that process may not actually be leading them anywhere. Um, the goal always has to determine the process, and then the progress you make along the way has to all, you know, fluctuate your process. And so for me, I mean, once I decided I was going to get a six or get a hundred thousand emails, I just had to learn how to do that. Write viral headlines, get better at structuring your articles, uh, learning how to get email addresses. I mean, I was just very purposeful. I was very deliberate in my practice. Um, and yeah, I would write, I, I probably on medium wrote over the years, probably 200 articles. Um, but I, I really focused on you know, I did have quantity, but I really focused on quality as well. Uh, and I, and so I was, I just, I was just very committed to a goal to be blunt and honest with you. I didn't actually want to be a blogger. I wanted to be a writer, but blogging was the most effective way of getting where I wanted to go. And so I just did it well. And just, I mean, I did it well because I was committed to the goal. And what's so, what's ironic here is that everything you just described sounds, sounds like a really good formula you know, if somebody wanted to repeat your success with writing, uh, being published, being a successful author, you just laid out this formula. But underneath that, you are providing tons of real value. You know, like you started your PhD program in 2015, but but you obviously you were doing tons of reading and research and and finding all the good stuff. You know, in uh, in psychology, in you know, we talked about willpower. We talked about personality, and I got that right away from your creating your ideal future. When did you write that? 
That's all in personality isn't permanent. There's a lot of research on this subject. You'll yeah. see it all in chapter chapters yeah. one to especially. But yeah, I mean future there's a lot of research on future self, man. A lot of research on future self. Yeah. That's why your yeah. future self is way more important than your current self. Yeah, and you um in your in your book Creating Your Ideal Future, you uh talk about you and your wife had a practice, uh, which I thought was so cool to be able to do this with your spouse, of you each you know, sitting together, you know, maybe at the table, maybe in bed, whatever, you close your eyes and you each do your own little uh, sort of meditation vision uh, for a couple of minutes about what you want your life to be like and yourself, and then you would share it. Um, and I thought that was really powerful. I'd never heard that before. Uh, is that something you guys still do? I know it's harder with five kids, but it is harder with five <laughs> kids. Yeah, we don't we do it. We do it from time to time. Like last night, what we did as a family and every every day, you know, we have, you know, we usually have dinner about six and we do like, you know, whether it be like spiritual reading or like just like reading books or what, you know, watching a show. But like we do a few things right before bed that kind of prep the kids for bed at eight o'clock. But last night we we did this exercise of writing down. You know, we all actually talked about three experiences from our past that we felt like we're big experiences in our life. And then, you know, and everyone went around. And then after that, we talked about three future experiences that we want to have in our future. Okay. And I think, and, and uh, we just went in circles and did that. And I think, you know, it's fun to do that. Um, it's fun oh, to wow. have various ways of doing that. But I actually wrote an article on this just yesterday, but yeah, I think it's really powerful to think about the, and I actually, in, in writing down, write down all the experiences you want to have in your future. Because a lot of people, especially their identity narrative, they're they're defined by former experiences, you know. But it's it's far more powerful to be defined by future experiences. I mean, if you listen to Elon Musk, he talks about how he wants to die on Mars. Like that's an experience, <laughs> that's an experience he wants to have, and that thing, that experience, is driving his current behavior. You know, like the person who wants to run the marathon, they're being driven by a future experience, and so it can be really powerful for kids and obviously for adults to start thinking what are the experiences I want to have in my life or even in the next three to five years or one to three years, you know, and, and start thinking, what are all the experiences I want to have? Cause your brain really likes experiences. Our brain likes tangible things. You know, that's why numbers and goals need to be tangible is because numbers, experiences, these things are, are they're things your brain can crave. And also your future experiences can be, you you know, they're the things that drive you, obviously, they're motivating, but also they're the things that transform you. I mean, what are the experiences that you would want to go through in your future that you know would help you become the person you want to be? Uh, it's just, and so that's just one example of what we did yesterday with our kids for 20 minutes. Yeah, so powerful because, I mean, teaching a kid how to do that and, and have it be okay, like imagine this positive future vision of yourself. Uh, I think that's such a powerful thing to teach kids. And you made me think of something else earlier about, you know, being able to access this this future vision of yourself. Um, you know, you have to kind of create the time and space to do it. Like you have to decide, oh, is this something I'm going to do in the morning or before bed? And I've really been honing in on this lately because the smartphone, I call it the dumb phone now, actually, the dumb phone can be so distracting if you let it. And so you really have to, to, to be on guard. Um, you know, we think about the times that it's, that it's destructive to use your dumb phone. Well, that would be driving. And when you're trying to engage with your family, you know, if you're stuck on your phone and your kid's trying to talk to you or, 
you and your spouse, that's a bad time to be engaged with your phone. Now, but there are a couple of times that are seemingly less destructive, but uh, they can be just as pernicious for you. And that's if you look at your phone first thing when you wake up in the morning, or if it's the last thing you're doing before you go to bed and you're, you're filling your mind with the news or other people's agendas. Um, and so I'm really trying to clear out those spaces where to remember, you know, what my values and my vision are to just have that space free in the morning. And, uh, and I, I did it successfully this morning, didn't look at the news, didn't even look at the stock market, which is, you know, my lifeblood. Like I did not even look at where the pre-market was trading and just, you know, I said, okay, I'm not going to look at that. Just going to focus on what is this vision that I'm creating and what are my goals? And um, I, I don't, I think people underestimate how much focus we can lose if we let those, those things sort of creep in and become permanent habits uh, when, when there's no shortage of being able to, to check the, you could get up and, and read 10 articles about coronavirus, uh, you know, before you've even gotten out of bed if you wanted to. Yeah, I think that this is another reason why future self as the determiner of your decision making is so crucial is that, you know, if you don't have a clear future self that dictates your cre- your present decisions, then it's really easy to get distracted. You know, actually, Victor Frank talked a lot about this in Man's Search for Meaning, that without a sense of purpose in your future, the present becomes meaningless. Uh, and then your whole goal is just to distract yourself in the present. And so I think when you're waking up first thing in the morning and you're giving yourself that place to get intentional, you know, and obviously and I'm big on putting yourself in the right environment, putting your, you know, they talk about set and setting. You need the right mindset and the right setting. Um, and so you get yourself in the right environment, get yourself in the right setting. And obviously cell phone should not be in that equation. If you're trying to get, if you're trying to actually lock into who you want to be so you can live intentionally that day. But if you don't do that, if you don't, you know, if you don't know who you want to be today, then you're going to be on autopilot, you know, and you're, you are going to be heavily distracted in the present. You're just going to be who you were yesterday. And that's not necessarily the worst thing, but you miss out on so much if you do that. Like if you give yourself the space in the right environment to like pray, meditate, journal, if those are things that you're interested in, you know, at least the meditate and journaling are more uh, in the realm of what people are comfortable with. But you, you give yourself the space where your brain is super optimized after sleep to yeah. actually get clarity on what you need to focus on that day or in general. I mean, I can't tell you how many times while journaling in the morning I've gotten ideas, whether it be for articles or whether it be I need to reach out to this person. And then I did that. And had I not done that, like I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And if you miss that, not just once, but if you miss that for years where you're not giving yourself the space to actually get those powerful nuggets or those insights that are completely available to you, if you gave yourself 20 minutes of, you know, even five to 10 minutes of just reflecting and writing and giving yourself the space to think about where you're at or what you're dealing with or where you want to go, you miss those golden pearls that are just they are not available anymore because you're not in the right mindset anymore and you're not in the same place. And so to me, it's essential to give yourself that space where your brain is in the right spot and where you can just think about your future self and think about what you're trying to accomplish and, and then give yourself the space to write. And that becomes this really nice 
you know, backdrop where your brain can start throwing you the most amazing ideas. And to oh, not I love do that, that, I mean, it's very costly to not do that. I love that. That is so, that that's right up my alley because um, I'm not really a morning workout person. Like I'm not out, you know, doing push-ups and or yoga or anything like that. And I know some people are, and it's and it works great for them. But here's what I want to say: if, if you if you know you're not gonna pick up like a morning workout routine, at least try something like this that that Dr. Hardy is talking about. Have some kind of process or routine where you can get in touch with your highest values and vision. Um, for me, that is journaling. Uh, for others, it might be meditating. But yeah, don't don't give yourself a hard time about oh geez, I should be you know, uh, you know, hitting the weights or something. Uh, first thing when I wake up, Th this process that Dr. Hardy's talking about is just as powerful. And and look at all the ideas you can come up with, especially if you are, um, you know, any type of writer or or, or have to do, you know, uh, a little bit of homework every morning. Um, you know, give yourself that space to work on what's what's most important to you, and then let the world come in. And uh, and I can attest to the fact that some of your best ideas will come during that quiet time, uh, you know, when it's just you and a piece of paper. Well, Dr. Hardy, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, very excited for people to come in contact with the new book, Personality Isn't Permanent. Uh, you can go to uh, benjaminhardy.com. That's H-A-R-D-Y, benjaminhardy.com. And uh, see a little video there from, from Ben and introducing you to his book with uh, some special offers if you pick it up, um, <clears throat> hard copy or on Audible. Hey, who's doing the Audible narration for this? I, I didn't even look, Ben. Have you ever heard of Sean Pratt? I have not. But Sean uh, Pratt's done a lot of big books. He okay. did like Body Body Keeps the Score, Unstoppable. I mean, he's he's done a lot of big books, and so Very I just felt like he'd be a cool option. My, my publisher, honestly, didn't even give me the option. <laughs> my <laughs> former publisher did. I did Willpower Doesn't Work, but uh, I think that you know, some, a lot of these big publishers are really uh, they're really you know putting their foot down and they they just want these books to be done right i guess oh that's awesome then you then uh then you lucked out because i'll tell you i i have an auto audible subscription and uh many books i want but i i have to listen to the reader first and i have to like the reader their reading style their voice etc or i won't do it um so that's 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 awesome for you well um i can't wait to see how this book does, I hope it. Uh, I hope it gets uh, climbs the bestseller list, and uh, and and more important than that, the reason I want it to do well is because I think that it it offers a lot of answers to what people might be struggling with, questions they might have, and um, and the future vision stuff we talked about, um, you know, is is like the underlying mechanics of of understanding why your personality isn't permanent and it's up to you. Dr. Hardy, thanks for joining us today on Mind Over Money. Yeah, it was really cool to be with you. Thank you so much for such a, a kind, nice interview. 
This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identified and described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.